Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Hi folks, Dr. History here with another story from the Old West. We had a little problem out at Zeb's studio this week. Seems the electricity went off, so we didn't get the story recorded, so I'm on my own today. Before I get started, I just want to say hi to Dennis. Last week we talked about guns, and Dennis said his favorite gun is the Winchester 94. And I've got to admit, I do like my lever action 3030. Good old gun. Also want to say hi to Josh. Now, Josh has a really nice podcast. It's called The Bloody Beaver. So you might want to check out Josh's podcast. So today we're going to talk about a guy by the name of Oliver Loving. Now, I want you to picture this. It's 1867. Below a hill a few miles from Carlsbad, New Mexico, two Texas cattlemen. One of them, a tough old cowboy, about 50 years old. The other was a 23-year-old cowboy. These two men were fighting for their lives, surrounded by a war party of Comanches. Now, this story probably wouldn't have been too much of a story except for the amazing courage, the loyalty that took place with these two men. Uh, It's a true story of how tough and brave these men of the American West in the frontier were. Oliver Loving was born in Kentucky. He was a remarkable cattleman, entrepreneur, who in 1858, he partnered with a man named John Durkee in taking a herd from Texas to Chicago, Illinois. This was the very first such drive on the historical record. In 1859, a year later, he blazed another trail to Denver by way of Pueblo, Colorado. And through the Civil War, he supplied the Confederacy with beef. In 1866, he partnered up with 30-year-old cattleman named Charles Goodnight, who was actually 20 years younger. They put together a herd of 2,000 cattle and headed up a new trail uh, up the Pecos River into New Mexico and on to Denver, Colorado. The following year, they started another herd west over the same route. They hit the Pecos during the end of July uh, or June, right in there, about 100 miles upriver, loving traveled ahead of the herd on horseback in order to bid on the contracts, which he was supposed to get in July. So the older partner was Loving. Now, because Loving was impatient, some say he was even maybe a little bit reckless, Goodnight not only insisted he be accompanied by one of Goodnight's top men, Arkansas-born herder Bill Wilson, who had already lost an arm sometime during his 20-odd years, but also made Loving promise to ride only by night. Well, after only two nights, however, Loving, uh, who hated riding at night, talked Wilson into riding during the day. Now, Loving probably didn't have to work too hard to convince Wilson to ride during the day. Now, Wilson must have been a pretty tough old cowboy. Some say he lost his arm when bitten by a horse when he was five years old. Or he may have just been born without an arm, or maybe it was a farm accident. No one really knows for sure. Now, crossing the plain in broad daylight, these two riders obviously could be seen for miles. Now they were spotted by a Comanche raiding party that came thundering after them. The two cowmen made a four-mile run for the Pecos River, spurring their horses over a hill and down to a sand dune at the foot of the hill where it formed a shallow cave, as open uh, only from across the river. 
As the Comanches surrounded them, Loving and Wilson got ready for a fight to the death. Well, Wilson was armed with a revolving six-shot rifle and saddle holsters, as well as his own cap and ball six-shooter, while Loving had pistols and a Henry rifle. Now, the Comanches, Wilson estimated that they numbered several hundred, swarmed down the hills all around them, but the first one who fired at the cowboys from across the river got shot by Loving, so that slowed them down for a while. Well, late in the evening, Wilson and Loving heard someone call from a a hill above them in Spanish. Now, realizing it could be a trap, but with the situation looking hopeless, Wilson took a chance and stepped up on the dune to see what was going on. And Loving was right behind him, with his Henry rifle in his hand, his holsters across his arm. As Wilson stepped into view, Indians, hidden in a clump of brush, opened fire with one of their bullets smashing through Loving's wrist and crashing into his side. Well, Wilson quickly fell back into the ditch to see what he could do for Loving. After stopping the bleeding, they got ready for another attack. Now, this is the story that uh, that Wilson told uh, uh, Goodnight later on. He said the Comanches shot their arrows high into the air to make them fall at a sharp angle into the ditch while Wilson and Loving hugged close to the low but perpendicular wall of the washout. And the arrows either stuck in the sand above them or passed over their backs into the other bank. Now, this was told to J. Evitz Haley in the 1920s for a story in his 1936 book. So, next, the uh, Comanches tried bombarding their men, uh, the men with gravel, but that didn't work either. So they were throwing rocks, basically. Well, the evening wore into night, weak from loss of blood. Loving was racked with pain, with fever. Wilson managed to get to the river and brought back a boot full of water for the suffering man. But Loving's condition worsened, and he begged Wilson to escape, if possible, and carried the story of his fate downriver to Goodnight and to his family. He said, I'll stand the Comanches off the best I can, he told Wilson. But rather than be taken and tortured to death, I will shoot myself and fall into the river. If the Indians leave me, I will find strength enough to travel. I'll head downstream a couple of miles and hide. Well, Wilson agreed to make the attempt. They calculated carefully. If he could hold out for a day and a half, he would have a good chance of meeting Goodnight, who was heading that way with the herd. Now, according to their story by Goodnight, quote, he spread their five six-shooters and Goodnight's rifle by Loving's sound arm, but took the Henry and its metallic cartridges, which would be unaffected by water. For to escape by the river was his only chance, Goodnight said. When the moon went down, Wilson told Loving goodbye, moved to the mouth of the gully, and divested himself of his clothing, hid his clothes in one place, and his knife, which dropped from his pocket in another, all beneath the water. He pulled off everything but his hat, drawers, and undershirt, which he hoped would protect him from the sun, and slipped into the treacherous stream. Well, the river was quite sandy and difficult to swim in, Wilson recalled. Quote, so I had to pull off all my clothes except my hat, shirt, and breeches. He nearly drowned trying to hold on to the rifle with his one hand, so he leaned it up against the bank of the river under the water, where the Comanches would not find it, Wilson said. Then I went down the river about a hundred yards, and I saw an Indian sitting on his horse out in the river. 
with the water almost over the horse's back. He was sitting there splashing the water with his foot, just playing. I got under some smart, some smart weeds and drifted by until I got far enough below the Indian where I could get out. Then I made a three days march barefooted. Everything in that country has stickers in it. On my way, I picked up a small, the small end of a teepee pole, which I used for a walking stick. On the last night of his slow and painful journey, he was followed by wolves all night. He said, I would give out just like a horse and lay down in the road and drop off to sleep. And when I would awaken, the wolves would be all around me, snapping and snarling. I would take up that stick, knock the wolves away, get started again, and the wolves would follow behind. I kept that up until daylight when the wolves quit me. Wilson recalled, at about two, 12 o'clock on that last day, I crossed a little mountain and knew the boys ought to be right in there somewhere with the cattle. I found a little place, a sort of a cave, that afforded protection from the sun. I could go no further. After a short time, the boys came along with the cattle and found me. Now, during their earlier drive to Denver, Loving and Goodnight had discovered a valley about two miles long and a mile wide, close to the New Mexico line, near the upper end of which were some gravel hills. In one of them, a cave extended back 10 or 15 feet, which they marked as a splendid hiding place for Comanches planning a surprise attack. Well, uh, Goodnight says, I was watching carefully for the Indians. He, he remembers, he said, suspecting that they might be behind the hill when I saw a man come out of the cave and go back into it. Good night gave orders for the herd to be held and for the men to be ready for a fight. When Wilson came out of the cave a quarter of a mile away and gave the old frontier signal, come here, Good night said he knew positively that it was Wilson. And I immediately put the horse down to full speed and went to him. For a few minutes, he seemed unable to talk, probably overwhelmed with emotion, knowing his life was saved at last. Well, with what was left over his underwear saturated with red dirt from the river, Wilson was the most terrible object I ever saw, Goodnight said. His eyes were wild and bloodshot, his feet were swollen beyond all reason, and every step he took left blood in the track. I inquired about loving but he could scarcely make a reply, and what he did mutter was entirely unintelligible. I put him on my horse and got him to the herd as quickly as possible. I tore up a blanket, wet it, and wrapped his feet to remove the fever, and then made him a light meal of gruel, which I gave him at intervals for about an hour. By then he was perfectly himself. I asked him for particulars, and he told me in detail of the trip and the attack by the Indians. Goodnight continued the story. When Wilson finished his story, I decided to start immediately. We rode the rest of the evening and all that night. It not only rained, but it rained torrents and was so dark at times, we were forced to halt. When I reached the place where Wilson told me he had left the trail, I recognized it easily from his description, although the plains were unmarked or would have appeared to be so to the untrained eye. Besides his description, the place was distinguished by the fact that a bunch of Comanches had come again out of the mountains and passed over the same trail they had taken when chasing the two men. Their tracks seemed as fresh as ours, and we supposed they were under the bluff still trying to get Mr. Loving. 
But when we got to the top of the bluff, there was not an Indian in sight. In a moment, I found where Mr. Loving had been in the ditch, which was now half filled with stones, and its banks perforated with probably a hundred arrow shafts, though the Indians had gathered the arrowheads before leaving. I knew they had not got him, as there was ample evidence that they had been hunting for him everywhere. We searched down the river, but no tracks could be found. I believe he had carried out his threat that he had shot himself and floated down the river, the torrent obliterating all traces. After dark, the party sadly made its way back to the herd and again took the trail. But, folks, Loving was not dead. After Wilson left, the Comanches continued to shower Loving's position with rocks, and they actually tunneled through the dune to within a few feet of where he lay, but they lacked the courage to get closer. Racked with hunger and the fever of his wounds, he somehow managed to keep his attackers at bay, but few men could endure a shot-shattered wrist and three foodless days and sleepless, sleepless nights without collapsing. Now, in spite of his age, and as I mentioned, he's about 50 years old, Loving was blessed with an iron constitution. When no help showed up, he followed Wilson's lead. On the third night, he crawled into the water and started upstream instead of downstream, hoping to reach the trail crossing present-day Carlsbad, about six miles above, where he hoped some passerby might help him. At last, he gained the crossing and lay down in the shade about four feet above the water. And again, this is what Goodnight tells of the story. He attempted to shoot some birds that came into the trees, but the river had soaked his powder and caps and the guns were useless. He tried to eat his buckskin gloves, but could not kindle a fire to parch them to a crisp and again settled back to wait. For two days and nights, he stayed there too weak to move by satisfying his thirst by tying his handkerchief to a stick and dipping it in the river below. On the third day, his superb endurance broke and he sank into a stupor. Three Mexicans and a German boy in a wagon drawn by three yoke of oxen passing through on their way to Texas stopped at the crossing to prepare for dinner. The boy found Loving apparently asleep. He was taken to the wagon where the Mexicans prepared him a tole, which is similar to our cornmeal mush, after which he offered them $250 to take him to Sumner, which was about 150 miles away. Now, meanwhile, Goodnight's herd kept moving north. About two weeks after this, Wilson said, we met a party coming from Fort Sumner, and they told us Loving was at Fort Sumner. The bullet which had penetrated his side did not prove fatal, and the next night after I'd left him, he got into the river, drifted by the Indians as I had done, crawled out and lay in the weeds all the next day. The following night, he made his way to the road where it struck the river, hoping to find somebody traveling that way. He remained there for five days, being without anything to eat for seven days. Finally, some Mexicans came along, and he hired them to take him to Fort Sumner. Some 30 miles from Fort Sumner, a courier brought Goodnight the news that although Loving was alive, gangrene had set in and his arm needed to be amputated. Loving did not want the operation performed unless I was there, Goodnight said, as he feared he might not survive it. 
The old doctor was in Santa Fe, and the young doctor put me off from day to day with various excuses. Fortunately, I found him at the hospital alone and told him briefly and in no uncertain words that I presumed he was putting me off because we were rebels and that we must now operate or make wounds on me, is what he said. Well, the doctor performed the amputation, and Loving seemed to be doing pretty good. Just to be on the safe side, Goodnight paid a man uh, $500 to ride to Las Vegas and bring back Dr. John H. Shout. They arrived two days later, only to find out that Loving had suffered a relapse. In spite of neglect, starvation, and punishment, he lived for 22 days, perfectly rational to the last, when his mind turned back to Texas. Goodnight recalled, and at last he said, I regret to have been laid away in a foreign country. So Goodnight said, I assured him that he need have no fears, that I would see his remains were laid in the cemetery at home in Weatherford, Texas. He felt that this would be impossible, but I told him it would be done. Well, Loving died on September 25th, 1867, and his body was temporarily buried in a simple wooden casket at Fort Sumner. Now, four months later, Goodnight returned. Well, transporting the remains of his friend back to Texas would be a difficult job, but the cattleman was determined to keep his promise. So gathering uh, some oil cans from about the fort, his cowboys beat them out, soldered them together, and made a huge tin casket. Inside this, they placed the rough wooden one, several inches of powdered charcoal packed around it, They sealed the tin lid and crated the whole thing in lumber. They lifted a wagon bed from its bolsters and carefully loaded the tin casket onto it. On February 8, 1868, with six big mules strung out in harness, the tough old cowman from Texas rode ahead and behind the strangest and most interesting funeral procession in the history of the cow country, bringing Oliver Loving home. The Pecos, the graveyard of the cowman's hopes, Goodnight told the story. Down the relentless Pecos and across the plains, the 388-mile journey was singularly peaceful, Goodnight said. Through miles of grazing buffaloes, they approached the cross timbers, reached the settlements, and at last delivered the body to the Masonic's Lodge at Weatherford, Texas, where it was buried in Greenwood Cemetery, with fraternal honors. Now, folks, that's the story of Oliver Loving and his good friend, Charles Goodnight. Talk about some tough guys, Bill Wilson and Oliver Loving, uh, the fortitude and the bravery and the courage and the loyalty of Goodnight to be able to take the body clear back to Weatherford, Texas to be buried. So that's our story for today, and hope you'll join me next week for another story from the Old West.